Hello everybody and welcome to a new episode of What the Field. I'm Emmeline and today I'm here with Alessia Tersi, author of Growth for Good and an economist uh, with the European Commission. And we're in a bit of a different setting today. We're actually at an olive grove uh, in Valencia, sitting here in an old uh, finca. But I think it shouldn't matter where we are. I'm glad uh, you could join us here. Um, we're very honored to have you. And um, we are going to be talking about growth for good and about the challenges of conciliating uh, economic growth with sustainability. So Alessia, to start off, tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> um, I'm an economist, which is usually not a good thing to say around, but I try to be of an economist of the good kind uh, and in particular working on uh, uh, sustainability issues or trying to understand the relationship between the economy Uh, and nature and how to reconcile the two uh, the two forces i have been working in academia i've been working for think tanks and now i'm in a policy institution as you were saying the european commission okay okay great um and so you've written this book as we mentioned growth for good and uh, my first question would be why or how did economic growth become like the overall goal of a society and and of companies Like, why are we not measuring our success uh, with something else? I think, uh, to an extent, you know, the, the story goes that we developed this indicator, uh, GDP, gross domestic product, around the time of the Great Depression in the United States. And that was a time when Franklin Delano Roosevelt wanted to get a sense of the size of the economy because uh, it was a, a Great Depression and, and he wanted to put in place the New Deal. So a policy to respond to the recession, but then you needed to know how much, how big you had to uh, create this new uh, policy uh, program. Uh, and that's how this indicator came to life. And then it sort of became entrenched uh, and, and various nations started using it. And now it has become a bit the benchmark across countries where countries can compare uh, each other. And in terms of companies, I guess it, it is more a product of of capitalism or a system where prices matter and where having more resources means you can invest more and the fact that you can invest more means you can reach more consumers and eventually grow and so you have this sort of cycle that, uh, that repeats itself. Okay, very interesting. And do you feel like um, if you think of today's challenges we are facing uh, regarding sustainability, regarding also social inclusion, that... Uh, economic growth is an adequate response to these challenges? Let's say the way I, I try to explain it um, also to my students or to, to an audience that is not expert uh, in this field is that to me gro economic growth relates to the resources you have in society and that potentially you can use in society towards whatever goal you think is important. Um, and so I don't think that we're going to surpass The, the importance or the concept of growth, but it doesn't mean that you should focus only on that. You want to know how you're using these resources and potentially you want to use more of this investment or, or resources at societal level to improve your relationship with nature or to redistribute some of them and reduce the inequalities that plague our societies right now. But speaking of resources, there's a lot of people that say the problem is precisely that our resources are finite. Mm -hmm. 
what would you say to those people saying that the problem is precisely that we don't have enough resources to sustain this uh, growth long term? I think to a certain extent, I mean, there, there is some truth in this in this statement. Um, and what I try to argue also in the book is to say, look, uh, we have been pursuing a growth model uh, that is uh, based on fossil fuels related to the, to the climate or based on a linear model rather than circular related more to environmental issues. So it is overall a growth model that perhaps worked at some point in history, but by now has brought us in a, in a deep clash with certain planetary boundaries. And so what this means is definitely that we cannot continue down the current growth model, uh, but I believe that a different type of model can be uh, can be uh, pursued and uh, and that it will be a different type of growth. If you want, you can call it green growth, if you want to follow the, the standard uh, language, uh, but one that is more based on a circular type of economy, on different resources, on renewables. Um, and uh, and so I, I don't think we've, uh, we've reached the end of growth, but definitely of the growth we've seen uh, since the Industrial Revolution. And so when you say growth for good, which is the title of your book, I'm assuming this is what you're referring to, right? So um, looking for uh, alternatives to maybe current models that still mean uh, growth Indeed. in an economic Indeed. Form. What, what I had in mind was growth that, I mean, of course, it's a bit of a play on, on language and the fact that I don't think that growth is coming to an end so that it will continue for long. Uh, but at the same time, that this is not necessarily... A, a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it is often, by now, it has become this totem of negativity and all the problems yeah. are due to growth. To my mind, uh, it is uh, due to this type of growth, as I was saying, but that this can return to being a force for good, uh, both on the environmental dimension and the social dimension, as you were saying. Whose responsibility is this um, positive growth? Is it something that um, society needs to basically ask for or is it something that companies need to lead or is it something that needs to come from uh, basically governance like policies implemented for example by the European Union mm -hmm. um, I guess it's the sum of all parts as, as usual you know in uh, in when talking about climate people are always looking for the silver bullet and the, the, the standard response is there is no silver bullet. We will have to use a variety of tools, a variety of technologies. And it is the same a bit on, on this dimension on growth. I don't think, and how to make it compatible with the planet, I don't think it is up to one single actor or one single category of actors, be it business or be it government, but we need sort of action from all sides. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot that policy can do, uh, maybe because I, I, I work in policy, people always talk to me about what governments should do or what the European Union should do. Uh, if I were the prime minister, what I would do. And there is a lot that, that, that prime minister, governments, institutions can do, but it doesn't stop at that. And I think that there's a lot that pioneering businesses can do as well, both in terms of uh, setting ambitious standards for themselves Uh, but also in terms of developing new technologies, but also de developing new uh, models, business models, which I think is something that you are uh, up to uh, doing uh, uh, right here. And then there is a lot that consumers slash citizens can do. And I, I say the slash because as citizens, they sort of define what governments are able of able of doing. Mm -hmm. uh, we cannot do these policies against people's interests. If people are not on board with the green transition, this 
contains what we can do. And you cannot do this green transition if consumers are not on board because you will just be running out of money at some point. So it's nice to do good, but if you are running out of cash, you will run out of uh, investments and, and ways of financing your operations. And so that's where I think all of these things come together. Yeah, true. You were speaking of people's interests. Um, that's actually a very good point. And I think a lot of people are quite worried at the moment that this whole like this effort, this transition towards a greener economy is going to be slowed down by what is happening at the moment, which is inflation, which is uh, energy crisis, rising prices all around. At the same time, salaries are not necessarily increasing or at least not as much as mm. the prices are. So the worry is that this is actually going to be a problem for sustainability efforts because, I mean, we see it ourselves But we also see it like with uh, more responsible fashion brands, etc. It's uh, usually a higher price tag for the product. So then if people don't have enough money, then they're not going to be able maybe to splurge, let's say, or to spend uh, in the way that might be needed for this type of green economic growth, let's say. So would you say that it's possible to like reconcile these uh, sustainability efforts and then the, the almost social economic part of it uh you know where we are impacting maybe um middle class that is already kind of suffering at the moment in europe because of the rising prices um it's a very complex question but uh, <laughs> i guess i should expect it given the, the current situation we're in yeah um I, i guess to that extent a debate sort of start when the when the when the war on Ukraine was uh, was uh, started and um, and energy prices went through the roof particularly in Europe uh, there was a debate also among economists and environmental economists on what this was going to do to uh, the transition and whether uh, this was going to slow slow it down or accelerate it um, perhaps because i come across as an optimist it will not uh, surprise you that i was on the more positive side in the sense that of course it generates huge challenges that you're hinting at in the short term so it is not a good thing uh, there is inflation there's a cost of living crisis for some uh, yeah. making it to the end of the month is hard so it is uh, something that is difficult uh, for the for the short term but i suspect that eventually uh, when we will look back to this crisis we will see it as a huge accelerator of the green transition Bear in mind that it is not only about prices, but rather relative prices. So what is cheap, the cheaper option? And right now what we're having is that fossil fuels are going through the roof in yeah. terms of pricing. And this means that, you know, even just narrowly looking at energy, it means that solar energy is much cheaper than the fossil fuel alternative. It means sure. that wind onshore is much cheaper than the fossil fuel alternative. And what this means is that you're seeing a lot of companies that are trying to reduce, for example, their energy use. They're yeah. starting to install solar panels big times, uh, even SMEs, even people who don't know or care about climate change to a certain extent. They're doing it for profitability reasons. And so there's, we've reached a moment, I believe, uh, and increasingly so, that where the cheap option and the green option coincide. And so that by pursuing profitability, you're actually doing something that is in your interest of fighting climate change or the broader environment. Okay, so you think there's no like intrinsic, uh, let's say, fight between profitability and having a positive impact, whether it be environmentally or socially? 
Absolutely not. I think that the extent to which there is one, it is one that is likely to be extremely short-termistic. And so that companies that are interested in, um, in profitability broadly defined and that goes beyond the, the one-year, two-year horizon, but not much more than that, I'm not talking about 20 years, uh, should see that there are huge opportunities to be made in being at the frontier, being a leader in the green uh, transition. And if they manage to do that, they are going to be the ones that reap huge profits and huge benefits because consumers are shifting to more uh, profitable, uh, well, to more green opportunities and therefore generate uh, profitability for companies. So you don't think that they should simply consume less to pollute less? I think they should consume differently and we will see different consumption. I'm not here to say, you know, technology will solve everything and you can continue everything just with the uh, decarbonized option, let's say, uh, there will be some changes. And actually, to the extent that consumers are willing to make some of these changes faster, uh, the better it is. It is much harder to decarbonize uh, the whole of transport rather than for you to take a bike for short distances. Again, I'm not saying between here and Madrid, but maybe between here and Segorbe or uh, shorter distances, you could do that. Yeah. Uh, And if we were, when you sum these small acts, uh, we see that it has huge uh, repercussions on the amount of investments we need to do the decarbonization and the speed. Um, and so there's a lot that consumers can do. The only thing I'm saying is I'm not holding my breath for consumers to completely change their patterns and therefore to do the green transition through consumption changes or downscaling. If you were to do that, I, would, I suspect that it would take much longer or maybe we would never see the transition happening. And so last question, um, where is the European Union's role in all that? What is the, in, like, the European institution's approach on sustainable growth? I think the, the commission, especially this one, I mean, uh, I joined the, the commission in 20, early 2019. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting time because there had just been the parliamentary elections, European new parliament, therefore a new president of the commission, and I really saw the change in pace. Uh, You might remember at the time Green parties uh, uh, made uh, gains in that election, so the Green dimension was really present in in the European Parliament, and the result has been this new program that is uh, uh, the European Green Deal, and I really saw a shift even within the institution. So when I arrived, I, I sit in the economics department, And people weren't really interested in the green dimension, as in they were saying, you know, it's important, climate change is important, but it's somebody else's business. Yeah, it's not our problem. It's not our problem. It's going to be the environmental people, it's going to be the climate people, uh, but we do the economics and they do the rest. Whereas, uh, you know, the mind shift that that came about was to realize that everything is, uh, sustainability is applied to everything. So whatever you do, whether you do transport, whether you do economics, whether you're managing our buildings, so even our architects, let's say, everybody had to think through a sustainability uh, dimension. And that was a bit the pay shift. But also in terms of, of policies, this is a very broad, ambitious uh, package. One of it's considered, uh, and I don't say that only because I work for the institution, but it's widely considered maybe the most ambitious uh, overarching program in terms of environment and climate. Um, and therefore, it means that it touches on a variety of dimensions. Uh, there is obviously the climate and decarbonization, but there is new energy systems, there is food, uh, 
under the farm to fork, let's say, uh, headline, yeah. uh, transport, housing. Uh, so it touches on, on so many aspects because the challenge is, uh, is uh, societal, uh, let's say. And I think it's important to underline that this sounds like very remote because the commission is really operating in this uh, hyper-Uranius, very far from, uh, from citizens, but actually the repercussions would be felt. Um, some of these things, or some of the regulations, imply, uh, you know, how will have implications on your day-to-day life. So recently it was agreed that, for example, after 2035, uh, internal combustion engine cars can no longer be registered in Europe. It means that after that date, you will not be able to buy, you will not find uh, internal combustion engine cars um, that, to be bought. You will see that change. Yeah. Um, in terms of packaging, you will see that change. New uh, rules were proposed uh, just yesterday uh, in terms of reducing packaging and so on. You, these are things that you will see in your daily life. So they do have repercussions on, on individuals. It is not operating only on a very abstract, faraway scale. Yeah, and I think those are really important. Like at the end of the day, as you said, policy or, or directives such as from the European unions, I think do uh, have a huge impact. I mean... Companies, a lot of companies are willing to do their part, but some are not. Let's face it. And I think for those, like to to like force them to do a minimum, yeah. while consumers are not already forcing them out of the market by simply not buying their products, which would also be a way of like uh, forcing them to be to act more responsibly. But in the meantime, I feel like policy is. Uh, sort of an elemental part at the end of the day. But that's it, you know, like you, you said it exactly right, which is the purpose of policy, the way I look at it, is to speed up the transition, which would happen in any case. Yeah. So th- the transition is not happening because, because people in Brussels are imposing it on society. The transition is happening and would happen because uh, there is greater environmental awareness and citizens want it to happen. Now, the moment in which regulation comes into play is to break some of the uh, technological lock-ins or lock-in effects uh, so that this can happen faster because, of course, we're trying to do that against a timeline. If climate scientists tell us we need to reach net zero by 2050, then we have to accelerate it. We cannot just uh, wait for the transition to play out, uh, but it would happen eventually along the dynamics that you described that the green option would be cheaper and it would be perceived as superior. And so eventually, if you're not on board with that, you become, you're seen as more expensive and selling some old stuff. Yeah, um, And so that is the dynamic that would drive it eventually. And it's already, as you already mentioned, happening with fossil fuel. I mean, at the moment, they're clearly not the cheapest alternative. No, and to, us, to an extent, electric vehicles is, is another great example because you have policies uh, among in in many uh, European countries, for example, giving a subsidy for the purchase because right now electric vehicles are more expensive than internal combustion engine. We are reaching price parity within two, three years. So on a short term horizon. After that, you can let, uh, let's say, the the market forces do the job and the role of government is, is less important or of financing. Um, but rather we put a target and we say after 2035 you cannot sell internal combustion engine uh, cars so that the laggards know that there is no other way and that they will have to get on board with this uh, green transition transformation.
Yeah, Bertie. Now we just need to solve the battery issue. <laughs> Indeed. But like, as we say in Spain, poco a poco, bit by bit. And Actually, there, think... there's work that is already happening on that. And, and it's important that it's happening early stage. Because yeah, if we definitely. are expecting exponential growth in terms of the vehicles, it's important to already start thinking about the recycling of uh, uh, batteries right now, rather than then have a pile of stuff uh, in uh, in landfills and trying to solve it afterwards. So I, I see progress already now uh, into exploring how to organize this in a circular way. Mm-hmm. And we have a bit of time in the sense that we're starting to see the pickup of electric vehicles, but it's going to take a few years before you're throwing it, throwing them away, let's say. Yeah. And also I think sometimes that probably um, people also, because I feel a lot of people are quick to blame the European Union. Okay, there's not enough policies, they're not strict enough, or they're not doing this, or they're not doing that. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's a lot of countries that you all need to get on board. At the end of the day, it's not a dictature. So I guess it's, it's I see it even in a private setting, no? If you are with your friends and you need to agree on what are we having for dinner and there's more than five imagine. people, it gets, yeah. it gets complicated. Imagine. No? So imagine um, if someone, a country is dependent on fossil fuel or on other things and you cannot just overrule um, a certain amount. I mean, I guess you, you, there's a, is a democracy at the end of the day, so you need the majority to be on board with things yeah. and it's probably really hard to achieve and to get everyone to agree on the same thing. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you appreciate this because it, it is true that all, even governments, when they, they go back to their own countries and then they yeah. blame the EU for not having done something or having done something that they didn't like, uh, but this is part of a shared decision-making process and this often gets lost in translation. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is as you were describing. Exactly. Even even the countries uh, on their own need to come to a conclusion or to a common ground agreement yeah. of what, what they want to do, what they not want to do, and then go back to the EU and give like a joint opinion. I, I yeah. feel like it's a lot of very complex processes and it just takes some time and probably we all need to be more focused on what we can do versus what other people can do to like all contribute a little grain of sand, right? In the long run. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Alessio, uh, for the time, for this very interesting chat. And also thank you very much to our listeners and viewers for taking this little field trip to the world of conciliation between economic growth and sustainability and Growth for good, as Alessio phrases it. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. Until next time. Bye.